You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey, everyone. Today's guest is someone I've been quite excited to meet uh, for some time now. Um, I actually often use his business uh, as a sort of quintessential example of a social enterprise to kind of highlight the difference between that and a sort of traditional socially responsible for-profit business. So I'm excited to welcome Tal Dedier, who is founder and president of Eau Liberté. And just briefly, Eau Liberté is an organization really with a mission to create high quality, sustainable jobs. They're operating in Ethiopia right now, and uh, they happen to make shoes. <laughs> so Tal, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been, um, I'm, yeah, I'm excited to have this chat. I have lots of questions for you. I'm fascinated by the business. Um, we also have quite a few sort of just like these weird one-off sort of overlaps in our, in our background. Yeah. So you have, I know, a bit of a loose connection, I guess, to South Africa. I've heard a bit of your story about parents deciding where to move. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Got, I, I spent some time living in South Africa. You've spent some time in Belize. My in-laws live in oh, yeah. Belize. So just these sort of, yeah, these little strains here and there where there's some, some overlap. So, uh, yeah, and your business, great. you got a business background, an MBA, and I also have a business background. So anyway, it's an interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, definitely talk more about that at some point. So maybe you may be able to do a little more justice. Can you just give everybody the kind of an elevator pitch on um, Eau Liberté and what it is and what you guys do? Yeah, so Eau Liberté is a responsible brand um, that sources in an authentic and responsible way. Obviously, it's a little redundant. But what I mean by that is, you know, we're trying to show people that there's a different way to manufacture. Uh, in our case, today, we manufacture in Ethiopia in a fair trade certified factory. And that doesn't mean that Oliberté is about making stuff in Ethiopia only or Africa only. You know, that's where we started and why I started. But it's about showcasing to others that you can make, you know, footwear anywhere in the world. It doesn't, and there's nothing wrong with making it, you know, in the, what people call the dark in Asia or something like that. You know, as long as it's done responsibly in a way that makes sense, that's what we're about. And that's kind of what we try to create that conversation through shoes. So, you know, maybe one day Oliberté is making shoes in, in the U.S. or Canada. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that it's only about Africa, but it's the idea of responsible manufacturing is possible, uh, especially in the footwear industry where you don't see it so often. Yeah. And I would hazard to guess, you correct me if I'm wrong, that thesis isn't limited to shoes. 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's why you see it in yeah, it's everything from commodities like coffee or tea, uh, you know, footwear, apparel, you know, it could be I just I just love personally for me. It's I was always trying to figure out how to combine branding with manufacturing with storytelling that's kind of branding storytelling kind of thing but branding sales let's say you know storytelling and manufacturing and either i manufacture somebody else does but how to bring that all together i just like shoes because it's a really neat neat way to express yourself every day and uh, it's a little bit more as a competitive guy it's a little bit harder to make shoes than it is let's say a t-shirt but uh, yeah those are all great examples if people are listening and they're not driving and can can surf the web what's the website tell it's at oliberté.com, O-L-I-B like Bob, E-R-T-E.com. And so I'd encourage people to take a look through it as, as they're listening. It's a really, there's a lot of information on there about the firm, about their practices. So you can kind of be kind of getting the context. I do want to dive into your background. You've got a fascinating story. Um, I like stories. I think a lot of people do. Uh, you're good at telling it. But 
just for context, how big is Eau Liberté? Um, just sort of give a broad sketch of. Sure. Yeah, there's different ways to look at us in terms of size. Uh, we're not a you know hundred million dollar business, you know, a couple million dollar business. Not that we don't gauge sales as a metric on that, but we gauge units of shoes made and sold because that's a reflection of how many workers we employ and as well how many consumers believe in what we're doing, at least for today. So I think last year we did last couple months, we did around thirty thousand pairs. Um, all made that in that those were all made in Ethiopia in our factory. Uh, that includes some bags and some wallets that we make in a third-party um, facility. We have 110 workers, 110 workers in Ethiopia, and then another seven staff here in Canada. Sorry, how many 30 in Ethiopia? Uh, no, 100, 100, 110. 110 employees in Ethiopia? Yeah, in Ethiopia, and then here about seven or so. Sorry, I misheard you. And are they all in Addis? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's uh, so not true. So 100, and I think five, or, but let's just say 100, give or take. Um, cause that can change just with the way we, we do our hiring, but in, in any given month, but there's about a hundred right in Addis and we actually don't talk about it. We have a second small factory about 400 kilometers North of Addis in a place called Debra Marcos. We built this and it's not a factory, it's more of a workshop. Uh, we built this about three years ago. And the idea there was to help people that have a foot disease called podiocosis. So we actually, you, you won't see anything on our site. We don't talk about it. It's a very quiet project that we do. Uh, you're probably the first time ever telling about it, you know, from a, media standpoint, if you will. And what we do there is we basically, we don't give away shoes. Uh, it's not our model, but we, we sell shoes to people that have this particular foot disease and we custom make shoes that, that works. Instead of just giving them a one size fits all shoe, which some of my competitors or other people have done, we basically have them come in. We work with the local charities. We size their feet and we make them shoe, uh, shoes that fit kind of their unique foot characteristics. Uh, in that factory, I think we have like just five or seven. It's a very small factory. It's not, you know, we don't do, I mean, I think maybe since we started, we've done three or 4,000 pairs of shoes in that factory. But it's a small project. But yeah, that, you know, those are a part of uh, Oliberté as well. But that was set up just specifically for selling to those individuals with that condition? Yeah, that was the original the idea. So we're not looking to make it a big thing. We were actually yeah. originally brought in there by a charity that came to us and said, and there's another company that was giving away shoes. Uh, that's no longer working with them. And they were wanting to see if we would come in and replace them. That's just not our model, but we'd be happy to, or if we could sell the shoes to those same people. And it turns out those people actually have enough cash that they're willing to spend on shoes that aren't going to break in a month or two. So uh, they're really good people. Um, the idea that was there is to only sell to people who have that foot disease, uh, but then eventually sell to people in that local market. You know, Ethiopia has 90 million people and 80, I don't know if the right, I'm going to butcher this, but I think the majority of people basically do not live in Addis Ababa, and mm -hmm. those main people do not have access to footwear. So most of those either A, don't use shoes, or B, only get shoes when they come into the city, and the quality and the value of those aren't great. So we wanted to provide an opportunity where in the local market for those rural people that they could actually have shoes made for them, even though there are some great manufacturers, local manufacturers in Ethiopia, and I'm digressing, but one of the complaints about us is, well, we make all these great shoes for North Americans or Westerners, but why don't we make shoes in Ethiopia? And it's because there's great Ethiopian manufacturers right now, and I don't want to be in there taking away their jobs mm -hmm. or their income. So we focus on export. But in this rural area in Denver Marcos, no one's there. And so that's why we, you know, I can personally, you know, I'm okay with it. And at the same time, we're all helping people that have this. So this is worth pausing on a little bit because the podcast really addresses a wide range of sure. audience from kind of like beginners to people who may be more involved in the impacts investing space. But this idea of, you know, you mentioned, well, we're not giving away the shoes. That's not our model is, I think, one of those kind of defining 
characteristics of a social enterprise as opposed to a philanthropic organization and the sustainability of that model. I mean, it may sound a little callous, I think, to someone who hasn't necessarily been looking at this space that here are these people in need and you're not going to give away those shoes, you're going to sell them instead. Maybe talk a little bit about social enterprise as opposed to to charity in your view. So everybody is a for-profit company, you have to find what works for you. And the reason I bring that up is Tom's is the one that, you know, is a great example of a company, a for-profit company that's not a charity that gives away shoes. I'm not here to say that what they do is wrong or right. It works for them. And I would be naive to say that they haven't had impact in the givings that they have done. Now, it might not. And what I mean by that is, you know, they've definitely helped a lot of people, you know, sustainable or not, they've helped a lot of people by giving them footwear uh, to people, places in need, especially children. Um, in Oli Berté's case, we believe the model, especially because we don't focus on children, so that's part of it. But from an adult perspective, sustainability grows with the ability to pay for their own products. And so it starts at a base level. Uh, Oli Berté is a social enterprise because we're a for-profit company, but we're based on these kind of value-driven ideas. And those value-driven ideas have a different play than someone like Tom's or someone who gives away, you know, plants trees. For us, why job creation? And it's a very hard thing for people to understand, like, how do you create a job? What does it mean to create a job? But in our case, having a factory, or by supporting factories that employ people that make shoes responsibly, it is my belief that it creates income for those workers. Then those income, those workers pay taxes to the government. We pay tax to the government. It creates a tax base that the government can provide the necessary support for those citizens. So there's that part of why we do what we do. And then there's the part of why we don't give away shoes is because in our case, we have found that, and this has nothing to do with Ethiopians, it's just generally how we believe people operate, is when you give them something, there is one of two things happen. Number one, they may not appreciate it as much, and that's not true for everybody. But in the most cases that we've seen, they haven't appreciated as much. And two, well, what do you do when they need their next pair of shoes? Are you just going to keep giving them more shoes? And in our case, we just are not big enough that we can just keep giving away shoes. And so we need a model that works for us. So do we make a healthy profit on these people that, you know, in Ethiopia that we're selling? No, like it, it's we make a profit, but it's really just to cover our expenses. I mean, it's very normal. I don't want to make it sound like we have some big operation. I mean, we've yeah. only been 3,000 pairs of shoes, five workers. It's not even a drop in the bucket, but it's just the idea of how we work as a company. But then there's the other side of social enterprise, which is the, and this is where I think somebody like Tom's has actually been really strong at, it's in creating brand ambassadors that believe in making a change. So I actually personally think that brands like that are planting trees that maybe get burned down by forests or giving away stuff, their biggest impact in the world is that they're creating awareness to consumers who want to make this world a better place. And they may then take those initiatives and you know, or that thought process and do something different with it. And so in our case, social this the on the consumer side, that's where we also have a big impact because we are working with consumers that want to buy products that are fairly made, whether they understand what that means or not is a different story, but that the idea that they believe that it's more than just buying a piece of material and putting it on your foot, but that there's something really behind it um, is an important part of either A, how we sell our shoes, but B, how we market it and see how we're sustainable because we could hug trees all we want. We can create these jobs all we want, but if people aren't willing to buy the shoes for the shoes themselves, like if these are not pity purchases, if these are legitimate consumers, we won't be sustainable. And if we're not sustainable, then we can't support the jobs. If we can't support the jobs, there is no social enterprise and we might as well just be a charity that raises donations to keep funding our losses through charitable donations. And then there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that's not our model. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think that there's a really nuanced discussion of that that issue. Um, the idea of a social enterprise versus charity is not, an, I think, an either or thing. Um, it's 100%. a and both. Yeah. And there are instances where charity is absolutely needed. And so I think yeah. about disaster relief. Uh, and so it's a good point, you jump, I'm going to jump in with that. So that's where, like, you know, I've given talks before and people think I'm anti-charity or, and, and that's actually not true at all. I think if you look at like somebody like Maslow's Hayek, he need, and you need education and, and, and shelter. That's where charity, I think, and development agencies and government, especially aid relief, they all play a huge importance in, in covering that basic need. But if you actually look at sociologically, shoes is not a bottom of the pyramid type thing. It is in a sense a luxury, even at the, for the poorest of the poor. So for us, in our case, we believe if it's a luxury, then, and luxury is used loosely, but if it's, it's yeah. not a must have, then it should be paid for. Um, in a case where, you know, somebody thinks that there's a health reason for that, you know, there is some logic there too, and I'm not against it, but education, health, shelter, in my opinion, that's the best place that charitable organizations play an invaluable resource. Now, that doesn't mean they can't enter in these other areas. And I think it's actually great because I'm starting, you're starting to see many charities be in these other enterprise areas. And they're using that capital to supplement the other initiatives they have. And therefore, they're more sustainable on their own, you know, asking less from donors in the long run as well. So it's not a black or white, or very gray. And I think it's just all about working together versus, you know, this is mine or this is yours. Right. To me, the way that I view this, it's, I'm just sort of saying, repeating the same thing you're saying, I think in different words is, you know, bringing private sector capital to the table through a, you know, for-profit lens it allows us to use charitable philanthropic funds, the most precious resource more effectively, right? Because to your point, you go to those areas where you just can't generate a profit because there's too much need. It's a basic sure. human need, right? That's too urgent. There's just no way to make a profit of that. So again, I get back to the disaster relief. Okay, 100%. Like you just have to come in and you have to give people what they need so that they're yep. not dying. So let's not waste philanthropic capital. Waste is a bad word, but you know, spend it on areas where you can create a sustainable model and charge people for. So I think that's a great example you've brought up. Oh, the other thing I'll touch on here is the reason why I mentioned in the intro that I tend to ref- use O Liberté as a good example of a social enterprise. I do consider, and I, you know, I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, but Tom's is more of a, a socially responsible traditional for-profit where I think it's a really great marketing message and there's, it's not devoid of impact. Um, to give away a pair of shoes for every pair sold. But if I'm thinking about, you know, what's the best way that I can have an impact with the resources of my shoe manufacturer, you know, giving away an additional pair of shoes is probably not the top thing on my list for making that impact. Again, I don't like to sit on the sidelines and criticize because anytime you've got people out there trying to make a positive impact on the world, I'm all for that. But it is an interesting way to, I think, distinguish there's not a hard, clear line between a social enterprise and a socially responsible, just traditional for-profit. And I think those lines will continue to blur over time. 100%. I hope we get to a world where there's no difference and just all businesses are very purpose-driven and, and mindful. And that's where you get somebody like, so we're what's called also a B Corp, like a benefit corporation. I don't know if you guys, your audience is familiar with it, but we've been in B Corp for a number of years and we skew quite high in terms of uh, the ratings on that. And that's another way to, you know, that to solidify the fact that you do care not just about the profits, but also the sustainability and part of being a B Corp because you have to not injure your, your shareholder agreements and all these right things. But for me, it's, it's always a hard thing, right? You know, I look at my parents who had a furniture business, employed dozens and dozens of people over the year. They were just trying to survive to pay the bills to take care of, you know, my brother and I. But why wouldn't we call them a social business, right? They were there creating jobs for 15, 20, 25 people. So 
you know, it's all relatively how you look at it. And so for me, you know, I don't look, I personally don't like the idea of, you know, social enterprise or social entrepreneur. For me, I'm just, I'm in a business and I believe these are important things that you should be doing as a humanitarian, or sorry, as a citizen of the world. And that's how I like to run my companies. Now the question is, is that successful or not? You know, it's a whole, it's a whole other, <laughs> other loaded question because it's definitely not financially easy going against the curve. Um, and, you know, we raise capital and, and do all these traditional things, but, you know, having a model and trying to be real authentic sometimes can be a challenge. There's no question about it. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned your parents a little bit. Why don't we just shift gears here? I, if you can talk about your story, I think it's real interesting. Yeah, no, happy to. It's immigrant family. I was born in Israel. My parents are former Soviet Union, you know, Latvia and Ukraine. They came to Canada in 1980, a little bit after I was born. Immigrant family, struggling in Canada. I'm giving the faster version, but uh, brilliant engineers. They couldn't, you know, my mom was a breadwinner for a little bit, um, working for an airplane manufacturer in Canada. And then my dad worked at some pawn shops and did some other things. Eventually, my parents got into the furniture business, and that's actually you know, did, did quite well for them. I'm real proud of them, and uh, they're they're kind of real examples of how you go from nothing into something through hard work, persistence, and passion. And passion not for the job, but passion to take care of your family. Different time, and and that gave you know at least myself and, and my brother as well, but an opportunity to have a passion to uh, not just have a job, a passion to do something you really care for, and that's you know what led me till today. But anyway, then over the years around 17, 18, um, I decided to go to Belize. I found this guy on the internet, which is kind of pretty immature. I found this guy on, on the internet and said, hey, can I come help you in, in Belize? And so I went down to Central America in 97, worked on in, uh, in the Savannah, you know, building tree nurseries, you know, living, you know, living basically in what the equivalent of the jungle would be. And I was like, hey, there's something neat here. I'm in a developing, at the time it was, you know, Belize was really helping, but I'm in a developing area. I'm kind of building some small commerce. I liked it. Continued through University of Western in Canada in a communications program, studied in Singapore for a bit. Any opportunity I could, I wanted to travel. And then after my undergrad, I took a year off, went to Latin America. I hitchhiked and backpacked and traveled, you know, with Mount Verde in Costa Rica. Pulled some sandwiches on the beach in Chile when we ran out of money. And then I went and did an MBA at Mac, at McMaster in Hamilton, uh, Ontario. It was a great experience. I realized I'm not your typical MBA. And out of the MBA, I launched a charity called MBAs Without Borders, where we would recruit not students, but people that had a business background. They just have to have MBAs. I mean, we had business guys from 22, guys, I'm sorry, women and men from 22. I think the oldest we had was 72. And we would basically parachute them into the developing countries. Uh, with either businesses that had some kind of quote-unquote social impact or charities that had some kind of social enterprise. So we worked in 20, 25 countries over the years and uh, from Afghanistan to Haiti, Colombia, uh, Africa, Asia, Latin America was kind of the focus. And you can't own a charity, but I personally own the trademarks. And then in 2009, I sold those trademarks for a very small amount to a charity that was uh, originally started by like the former Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, like a time ago. Um, and I'm literally just name dropping because I've never met her, or never <laughs> her, but I believe she was affiliated with it. And then, so I sold it, the trademarks to them, MBAs uh, Without Borders still exist. Uh, I think the head company is called Pixera Global right now, and they do similar projects kind of corporate development and social enterprise related. And it was at that time in 2009, I was in Liberia and I saw all this rubber coming off the trees and I was like, is there anything else I can do with this rubber? And learned about it some more. And I said, hey, I think there's something here. And actually the name of the company, Liberté, comes from Liberia, Liberty, Liberté, O Canada, Liberté. 
So that was originally, I was trying to build actually a shoe factory in Liberia. And then I realized that's not going to happen. But I was hoping at least to get the rubber out of Liberia. And I was going to get the shoes out of Nigeria. I had a local business partner in Liberia and named Roger, a great you know, older gentleman. Uh, unfortunately, he got quite sick. Uh, I believe he got malaria in the end. But anyway, he had some complications. And he passed away a little bit too sudden. And when I went back to look for my machinery and pay my condolences, the machinery was pretty much stripped, stolen, and gone. So I was like, hey, I could either end that now or find something else. And I, I met some, actually, somebody, I can't remember who uh, his name. He said, hey, have you looked at Ethiopia? So I started doing some digging and found out, you know, only country in Africa that could compete against Chinese imports in footwear, had a decent domestic manufacturing, had an Italian influence, which is important. A lot of leather, and so I was like, "Hey, there might be something here." So I shot my way over to Ethiopia, worked with some third-party factories for a bit. Eventually, we opened up our own factory, and uh, about two and a half years ago, we changed our model again. Well, we, because we used to sell the stores like Nordstroms and REI and MC and Aldo, and not Aldo itself, the brand, but some of their sub-brands and town shoes. Uh, but we decided for us, the best way forward was to go what's called direct to consumer, where we just sell on our website and. And that's what we've been doing for the last two and a half years. We make them in Ethiopia today. And like I said, one day that may change or in some other options as well in terms of manufacturing. Um, but the idea is, you know, to make responsible footwear. It's rugged, casual. If you've seen our shoes, you know, they're not pretty, they're not ugly, but they're rough and rugged. And we think that nomadic traveler that we're trying to attain, you know, we're not making stilettos or we're not making cowboy boots. We're trying to really, we think we know who our consumer is um, and our consumers know who we are. And we try to keep that relationship real strong by being authentic, transparent, never perfect. There's things we do I wish we never did, but we're transparent and authentic. And, you know, we understand why we do the things that we don't want to do and why we do. That's awesome. I mean, I think that's the name of the game, right? Is the transparency around like, listen, we don't have this all figured out. It's not perfect, but we're going to be straightforward and honest and we're going to be going to do the right thing. And, you know, people are looking for that increasingly. I think that's kind of one of the defining features of the zeitgeist is, is that this need for demand for openness and transparency in a world that often hasn't provided much of it. So I'm really interested. I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So you're in Liberia. You hear about Ethiopia. Like I'm presuming at this point you've never been. Uh, we had a project through MBAs Without Borders in Ethiopia. It was a coffee project. I think we were working with Fairtrade USA on it, if I remember right. And then no. So, I mean, I wasn't physically, when I, I read it, it was in Liberia. I was back home in Canada. And when I found this all at the idea was Roger was going to take care of our rubber production. And then, yeah, and then I just met somebody in one must have been one, a shoe trade show or somewhere along the lines. And I know his name, but it escapes me right now. And he said, hey, have you thought about looking at Ethiopia? And I literally, you know, I just I went to Ethiopia. I had a guy actually who worked for me in Colombia, Lawrence. I said, hey, I can't live in Ethiopia for the next eight months. I was just about to get married. I think we're just about to have our first uh, son. And um, so I asked if Lawrence could go there and visit all the shoe factories, the tanneries. He knew my social standards in terms of what I want. I knew nothing about shoes. And I said, hey, can you kind of visit them, see what works? And so Lawrence spent I think seven or eight months, maybe less, maybe more, but around that amount in Ethiopia, kind of learning as much as he could. But I also had given him one main instruction is, you know, I don't want this to be another business or charity or social or whatever you want to call it that just has, you know, the quote unquote Westerner, the white man running operations in Ethiopia. So his main goal was over those seven, eight months to find a local individual who could run our operations in Ethiopia. Uh, and he found one by the name of Freo Kabedi, and Freo's been running uh, our, our operations in Ethiopia for the last uh, nine years. That's amazing. So yeah, maybe talk a little bit about, I'm curious as somebody who, who 
runs a much more fledgling operation, KindWealth. But how do you infuse that culture that values, you know, mission, that sense of purpose throughout the culture, especially as you add people? Well, so in Ethiopia, it's a little bit unique, right? Because we're fair trade certified and that's a very westernized concept. So, Mm -hmm. you know, even when we brought it to our workers, they were like, I don't get why, like you're taking the Western philosophies and saying, well, our chairs, you know, don't look nice or this looks dusty. Like this is okay for us. More than okay, actually, we have a job. And so part of it is education and training and not saying that our version is right, but just saying that the company this is important to us. Obviously, with the fair trade, as they get their fair trade premiums, there's some benefits that they don't seem to mind, uh, nor would anybody lose their financial you know, benefit. But you know, that, some parts education, you know, here in Canada, it goes back to just, I think, transparency and, and knowing that we don't have the answers all the time. And we're not a, we have a lot in Ethiopia. We don't have a lot in Canada, right? So how do you transform that mission with your workers you know, on this side? Um, I think you look for people that want to do good in the world, that understand that, you know, they, it doesn't mean that you can pay them less or anything like that. You still have to pay appropriately, right? Because you still need people that have their own worlds. They have to take care of you. Know, we have, you know, we have, uh, you know, single family parents here. We, we have lots of different families that work for us. So being mindful to that is important. Um, I think being transparent, you know, we've done everything from sharing financials to sharing, you know, goods and bads of Ethiopia, sharing marketing. I think it really just comes down to transparency. And sometimes I think even forced culture, and sometimes I mean culture just kind of eventually figures itself out and you figure out the culture you maybe had in mind is a different culture that evolves. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, Not that I'm not big on culture. I'm big on good people and working together and letting the culture kind of figure itself out. Now, if something becomes a negative, not a bad culture, but like a negative atmosphere, then that's that's not something I'm comfortable with. And we've had some situations, but we have like little staff that have been a little, you know, just not positive. And for me, it's cliche, right? It's easy to train someone. It's hard to find good people. So you know, I'd rather find good people than, and, and train them than have mean people or negative people um, that have phenomenal skills. What percentage or how important to success as an entrepreneur and somebody running a business is like positivity? It's different for everybody, right? Like I, I was talking to entrepreneurs that the negativity fuels them, right? It's like, a, really, you know, it's like, a, it's even like an athlete, right? Coach talks to them negatively and that's what pushes them. You know, it doesn't work for me, but it works for others, right? So but do you think those people are like have a negative outlook themselves? Or I just don't know. I mean, that, that's probably a social, like, you know, that's probably a, <laughs> sitting down. I mean, for me, it's, I find as an entrepreneur, no matter what, you're the one who has to be positive because there's so yeah. many dark days. So other people are positive or not. The business itself has a lot of negative things happening in it every day. And being positive through that, I think, has to, and optimistic, persistent is part of what you have to be as an entrepreneur. And so whether or not, other people are positive. Now, that, that might add to a you know plus or minus, but there's just so many you know, cash flow, factory meltdowns, production, customers not happy with product, delays at the you know delivery, um, styles don't come in right, you know you know misshipments, cash flow again, cash flow again. Like there's so many, and to keep persistent through that. And again, we have a different layer. We have investors and shareholders and board members. So you know, there's lots of other elements to that as well. So I think positivity is is important for sure. Um, but it really starts with the guy or, or the woman who's running the operation because you have to internalize some of that, right? Not that you hide stuff from your staff, but you can't see it, but this is an open concept. They can hear everything I'm saying right now. And that transparency is just as important as the positivity, I guess. I think it's when staff are in the dark that they start to get more negative, right? If, they're, if they know what's going on, I've always, you know, they'll, they'll get behind you and support you even in the tough times because hopefully you've been there for them in the good times. 
Yeah, I mean, I just sort of think about it as I feel like most of the world can just be divided into two camps and you're either offense or defense and the defense is the negative, what can go wrong and why things can't be done and finding all the problems with things. And then there's the offense and you're, it's a spectrum, right? So you can be a little bit more positive or a little more negative or you can be extreme, but that just generally needing to be around people who are like, yeah, let's get it done. Let's do this offense person and yes that is true but you know i've worked with yes people that have no substance right yeah, and yeah sure and, and you also don't know right like you're coming into work one day and you don't know what your staff member maybe they had a fight with their husband right before they came to work right like right. you don't know what other stuff in their world may be bothering them in terms of their efficiency or their positivity for that day and so i think by having a you know if you do come back to culture like we don't have for example we have unlimited vacation here right? i don't care how much Want, you know, or the guys want to work from home today. As long as the work gets done, that's what I care about. If today was a slow day and we had an hour, go home. Enjoy the nice weather, go outside. Now, if it gets to the point where it's abused, which has happened in the past by other staff that are no longer here, that's a different story. But I think that allows them to take care of their personal life so they can, they can be as productive in their professional life when they're here in the office. At least that's what I can so let's talk a little bit about, there's a whole bunch of stuff. I've seen it a little while back and I had trouble digging it back up off the website because you're your website's packed with information. It's just sure. a matter of finding it all. Talk about some of those things that you do to support your workers, like the vacation, the pay, yeah. the fund. There's, I think, an employee fund that mm-hmm. the profits goes towards. Yeah. All that stuff is interesting. Yeah. So I'll talk about the stuff in Ethiopia first. So in terms of, yeah, we provide vacation and mat leave. We do all these things. I'm making sure it's okay. Like mat leave is an interesting detail, right? Like, is there any minimum mat leave required? Well, that's the thing. So, and that's where I'm saying, like, so the average person, especially when we talk to Americans, it's like, wow, they provide mat leave to their workers. But in total transparency, that is an Ethiopian law. Okay. So we don't do anything above and beyond the Ethiopian law. So I, I don't want to make, yes, we provide yeah, yeah. it, but I don't want to be like, wow, we're this, we're giving them a year. We, I think in Ethiopia, we have to give them 90 days or 120. I don't remember the exact. I think that sounds so, right. Yeah. But we do it, but we just follow the law. Right. Uh, same with vacation. Like, like we, so there's a lot of things that we do, which amazing in Ethiopia, just the law itself is already better than what people see here in Canada and the US. So to an American or North American or Western, they're like, wow, they do, you know, they do all these things. That's so great of what you take. So there's the part that we do because it's required by law. And I don't want to pretend that we do anything amazing on that part. We are following the law. It just happens to be those parts better. Mali is one of them. But then there's things that we have done that weren't required, which you know we're obviously proud of. And we're proud that we follow the law, but we're proud that we go above and beyond. And one of those is through Fair Trade USA, we have to have the workers form a union. Um, which isn't always, you know, uh, an easy thing for workers to believe that it's okay, right? Because in the past, unions don't aren't seen very friendly, uh, maybe even today. But in the developing world, or uh, we felt it was an important thing for our workers to have, and it was required as part of fair trade. So the workers have, for example, union. But in addition, because we're fair trade, or the factories fair trade certified, six and a half percent of the cost of every shoe uh, that leaves Ethiopia. That's not the full cost of our shoe, but the cost that we incurred in Ethiopia goes into a fund. At, like We just sent a shipment out of Ethiopia. We just wrote, uh, Joanne's writing the check right now, or wiring the money. So then we sent 6.5% of every shipment that leaves Ethiopia into a bank account, which is controlled by the workers, and they get that cash in addition to their regular. So there's things like that that we do are beneficial. You know, We don't have a NABO for a while. We had an on-site doctor and we had a nurse on-site. So those are like extra benefits that we do. Uh, and then here in North America, we have you know benefits. That's like the unlimited vacation. And then obviously, you know, the flex, not hours, but the flex life, if you will, flex, flex work-life balance, I guess, uh, if you will. So I'd say those are kind of some of the highlight reel of kind of the, the benefits. And then at the end of the day, it's just about working in a place that's, that's positive, and, uh, but positive and supportive. 
you know, of mm-hmm. each other, both in their professional and personal lives. Well, and as you mentioned earlier, we have talked about in a previous podcast, the B Corp certification process oh, yeah. is not a joke. It's, it's quite onerous. And you mentioned earlier that you scored well on it. Are you the first or, and or only fair trade certified fair trade? Uh, yeah. So as of right now, uh, <laughs> not as a brand, but the factory in Ethiopia is the only fair trade certified shoe factory in the world. And, and while I'm proud of that, I'm disappointed at the same time. You know, we've, been, we've had it now for, I was proud to say when we first started, but we're now, I think, four or five years with that certification. There hasn't been a shoe factory yet who has done that. And that's just either A, we, we haven't made a loud enough noise or B, you know, shoes are harder than to make than clothing. Um, they're not as efficient. They're much more labor intensive. And so everything in a shoe is a relative commodity, leather, thread, cotton, glue. And so whether you make your sh- that shoe in, in Asia or North America, you're going to pay the same amount for those type of materials where you're saving on is labor. So now if you add fair trade premiums, you're paying even more in labor. And so it's, you know, I get why shoe factories don't want to be fair trade certified. But yeah, our factory in Ethiopia is fair trade certified. You know, if one day we don't have that factory, will we require other factories we work with to be fair trade certified? Yes or no, we're not really sure. But we will kind of make sure that we're working again with factories that we feel, you know, are responsible. Like if we were made in Canada, it's different, right? There's minimum wage rules and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and requirements that by its nature already theoretically would make it fair trade. Whether it's a living wage is a different question. But no, so we're fair trade, first fair trade, B Corp as a company, not just in the factory. And then as well, we're part of a 1% for the planet, which was originally started by Yves uh, uh, Chouinard, I think is probably pronounced his name, from Patagonia. Can you just give people listening to the broad distinction between fair trade and uh, B Corp? Yeah, so B Corp is more about how you do business. Fair trade is how you ma- manufacture a particular product. So B Corp is, you know, you're responsible to your workers, you have good corporate governance, you have like a board, you have oversight, you're good to your employees, you know, you respect the environment, like it's general stuff. And they don't physically audit our factory, but we have to provide them documents and there's a lot of, and they do do a random audit. So I think they may have visited our factory once, but I can't remember that. But the point is, it's more about your business operation. Fairtrade certified is quite different. It's actually very intimate. They're in the factory once, once every 18 months. They're interviewing our workers. They bring a local representative and then, and then they kind of match it all. They're making sure we abide by right. 150 standards. And it does not mean that our shoes are fair trade certified, but it means that the manufacturing process is fair trade certified. And that's the big difference. So for example, obviously it confuses the customer because to them, what's the difference? But the technicality of it is the shoes themselves need to be fair trade certified. The leather would have to be fair trade, the cotton, the, you know, this and that. The process of making the shoes is fair trade certified. And for me, that's a frustrating point. We, a, we spend a lot of money to be fair trade certified. B, we spend a lot of time and see it's the right thing to do. But then you have a lot of other, I won't name the name, but other certifications. They're more like a religion. It's like, I believe in X religion, but I do all these bad things. But I'm still that person. Like, I still am Christian, for example. So a lot of them are, you know, like, hey, I believe in this philosophy. So I'm going to be part of this fair trade organization association. But if you actually look under the hood, they're not doing the actual thing, but they believe in the premise. Well, with Fair Trade USA, we might want to believe it, but they're actually checking us to make sure that we're abiding by those principles. And that's why, A, that's why I went with it. And that's why, B, you know, we, we see a lot of value. Where for the average consumer, you can just say you're fairly made. And, and to be honest, you know, going back to other brands, and I won't mention names, but people think that they're fair trade, right? And just because of how you position, that's a marketing thing. But Anyway, that's a mood point. I'm okay with it. At the end of the day, we know who we are and what we stand for, and, and I'm fine with that. 
I'm an optimist by nature, but I think the truth wins in the end, long term. I mean, in short term, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but the truth comes out um, eventually. So interesting. You mentioned Ethiopia is like originally when you were sort of looking at it and kind of the positive factors to make you want to locate there. But there's also some really interesting, like it's an interesting country um, oh. for a variety of reasons, particularly politically. It's kind of this kind of hybrid between a communist and a <laughs> capitalist government. Can you talk about the challenges you've had or, or maybe it's not as bad as I think? Of yeah, you know, and I'm always careful to talk about politics because we're not a political company. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're, yes, we make a statement. Yeah. We've been really lucky. You know, the Ethiopian government is very pro-business. Um, they've been, very, you know, and we're here to create jobs and, and, and particularly for textiles, right? Yeah, textiles. But other, I mean, they'd love to have more industries as well. Uh, there's a lot of positive tax benefits and, and incentives for foreign investors. So we stay out of the politics. Uh, the best thing that we can do is just keep creating jobs and keep supporting workers. That being said, though, you know, for us, the, the government of Ethiopia has been very supportive. We've been very, very fortunate that way. And part of that is, you know, we, we abide by the rules and the regulations. Um, which, you know, I think you, you are, you know, whether you like them or not, which we have no issues with, if you're going to work in another country, you know, you should abide by those. And when those change, you can then decide, you know, you, you work with the information you have today and make the best decision forward. So, you know, we've been very lucky in Ethiopia, you know, in our factory, we have Catholics and Muslims, you know, majority Catholics, the operations in Ethiopia, you know, we, we, you know, our, one of our tanneries for a long time, you know, was Muslim owned. So, you know, we're very all inclusive, supportive, but again, we're small. Like, you know, I love what we do. I'm very proud. But even though we employ 100 workers, which sounds like a lot, there's 90 million people in Ethiopia. So, you know, are we making a huge impact? No. Are we hopefully sending a positive message to a few? I hope so. Is there a guarantee? No. Have we changed the lives of millions of people? No. Have we changed and supported the lives of 100 people and possibly those families? Yes. I'm not that one that says, oh, we've impacted a thousands or ten thousands of people. And every one person we employ, that's 10 people. No. Like, I know that there's 109 people on my payroll. That's 109 people I can get, you know, that's, I can say I employ. Have I changed their lives? I'm sure for some of them, yes, especially that we brought into the tax system and never had a job. But some of them had a job and we're probably paying them the same amount that they made elsewhere. So have we changed their lives? No, we've, we've kept them employed. So I think it's about being realistic with who you are and not trying to, those are all good marketing stories. But at the end of the day, you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, what impact did I actually make? And that's the only, and, and that's hard, right? When I'm raising money or I talk to other charities or donors or they're like, oh, well, we want to see numbers like you impacted 10,000 lives and 100,000 lives. And I say, okay, but we have it. I can't show you a number that guarantees that, nor am I going to spend the money on the research to prove that when, I would, when that money could go better into our employees' pockets and taking care of them. So I'm not saying one is bad or good. It's just the way that I view things. It's something that I know I can go to sleep with at night knowing that I, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I don't have... Not everybody's my friend. I have a few enemies out there, I'm sure, but at least that I'm trying my best with the information I have at hand. Yeah, I, I love that, man. I think that's a really healthy attitude to the space because I think, of course, everybody wants to magnify and leverage their impact. And we were, we're operate now in an economy that's all about scale. And that's wonderful. And it's like scale's great when you can get it, but it shouldn't come at the cost of recognizing that 100 people's lives, or even if it's three people's lives or one person's life, if you're changing somebody's life, that's really amazing. And the vast majority of, you know, I think the Earth's population is not in a, a position to really worry about helping anybody else because they're in a difficult position themselves. Sure, you got it. And many of those people still do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but even those in the first world countries and 
economically privileged positions don't spend much time at all thinking about others. And so if we all did our part to impact whoever we could, and that's somebody's life. I think it's an infinite, you, know, you can't place a dollar value on an individual and there's 90 million other Ethiopians fine. But that one individual, I don't know how you put a price tag on, on that. So I, I really think it's a really wonderful perspective to bring. Thanks. No, I mean, it's just, yeah, I appreciate it. And it also, I mean, this is not to just sort of pat you on the back, but it, it does, you're just the genuineness of your sort of comments and like being transparent about, listen, or, you know, this is, we're doing these things and X number of these things are just required by law. So we're not out here trying to claim, you know, those are, I think, just getting back to your point about transparency. I think I've seen that shine through the website and now in the conversation with you. And so as a, you know, not that you need it from me, but as a word of encouragement, I think that stuff does, does surface that, that no, transparency great. and genuine. And that takes time, right? I mean, one of the things I appreciate that, but one of the things I find sometimes is because we're, I don't want to say we're too transparent, but, but because, uh, you know, I'm sure there's things that not intentionally, but that we just don't yeah. mention it's not, not intentionally, which just happens. But when you try to be transparent, you're never transparent enough to your consumer, right? So mm-hmm. for example, we're a leather shoe company, right? So we're fair trade and some people mix fair trade with vegan, but at the, they're two different things. So, you know, let's say we'll get vegans that are upset that we make our shoes with leather. And those are valid concerns. But in our case, leather can create an enormous amount of job opportunities in Ethiopia. And we feel that job creation is important. But there's negative side effects with husbandry and how they, you know, maybe they treat the animals and there's carbon, carbon dioxide. So, you know, we try to be transparent with how it all works and what doesn't work. And I'll give a great example. I remember Timberland years ago. They wanted our advice about using leather in Ethiopia. And Timberland, now they're owned by VF, is a phenomenal organization. Uh, not phenomenal, but it's a, they really, and I can't say it now, but under their previous ownership before they got bought, they're founding the CEO. And not that I can't talk about them now, I just don't know enough about what they're doing. Yeah. But back then, their founder and CEO was very pro-responsible manufacturing. They have, you know, and, and as much as possible being a responsible company, even though they're publicly traded, which can sometimes be odd. So they were investigating using Ethiopian leather, but it didn't meet their standards, right? It wasn't like, um, you know, there was too many animals dying in transit. Uh, the animals weren't fed well enough. There's all these things that, you know, they didn't check off for Timberland. But in the end, they're like, no, we can't, we can't buy the leather, nor can we work with the Liberté on a collaboration because we just wouldn't approve the leather freight. And I look back and I said, well, I get it. It's unfortunate. But if there's not people like the Liberté that are down on the ground trying to figure out how to take that create a space for it, and eventually bring somebody like a Timberland or a Nike who says, okay, we get this potential. Now let's create the infrastructure so that there can be better husbandry of the animals and the livestock is, is better treated. Um, you know, for me, we're the guinea pigs. You know, only Liberté, in quite honestly, will live and die and maybe never be heard, you know, in 20 or 30 years from now. You know, hopefully it is, but, <laughs> but, really, but you know, hopefully the legacy is eventually it, there's somewhere in that ripple that makes other factories or brands say, hey, maybe we can get not just in Ethiopia, but in Canada or the US or, you know, in Europe or in Australia or in Thailand, wherever it is, maybe they can say, hey, we take some of that model and evolve it over time. So we all hear about certain people, but we don't hear about a lot of those people beforehand. And we might not be that person that people hear beforehand. And I'm, and I'm totally fine with that. But if we can help encourage a few people along the way to get to the end result where people all around the world are paid fairly, treated fairly, products are made responsibly, then and I'll be just as happy, even though you'll never know it was us that was part of that kind of change revolution, if you will. Yeah, that's awesome. Those ripples are the way you, you can gain a lot of scale, right, and leverage. And so, as you say, if you help that next step occur, what an amazing impact that'll have been in and of itself. 
So just because um, we're, we're being cognizant of time, can you talk a little bit about what does the future look like for you? What are some of the biggest things you're excited about working on? Are you guys in fundraising mode right now? What's going on? Yeah, so I can't get into kind of all the little nitty gritty details. Um, sure. As, as transparent as I want to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're growing um, never fast enough um, in a number of fronts. Um, we are exploring manufacturing in other locations, uh, both as a complement to what we're doing in Ethiopia, but maybe as an evolution of, hey, we've shown people that you can make stuff in, in challenging environments. Can we show people you can truly make footwear in other environments that people have kind of forgotten about? So we're not far along in that process. We're kind of exploring some of that. And, and maybe that means one day you are seeing shoes made in Biast and wherever. So, you know, exploring that, we had a standalone that came out that we're exploring some other seasons. You know, obviously we're looking to, to kind of grow smart, not fast necessarily. We are always raising capital or looking for, you know, lenders and stuff. And that's always a challenge. But, but no, we're trying to be creative and smart, you know, looking to sell to more countries, make better products, uh, improve quality, kind of all those things. Those are kind of general checkboxes that we have. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's probably it in a nutshell. Cool. That's awesome. Well, listen, um, with that, I'll let you go. But again, I'll give you a little plug here. I, I got my first pair of shoes, Liberté shoes, uh, probably about a month and a half ago. My wife and I uh, oh, yeah? bought some shoes. We both love them. I wear them a lot. Um, if I'm being completely honest, I like, like, there's a bit of like, uh, I think in the impact space, you kind of recognize those brands that are doing good and like other people in that space, oh, those are Liberté shoes. And you like, it gives you street cred. <laughs> there you go. I like to hear that. Yeah. 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 Anyway. So listen, I really appreciate you taking the time, Tal. Sure, and um, yeah, if people want to check you out, oliberte.com, uh, right? You got it. Yeah, yeah, we're put. Yeah, you'll find us there, and I'll uh, put a link in the show notes as well. That'd be great. Cool. Thanks, Tal. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.